0: Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Hi, I'm Zach. Good morning. So glad um, to be here with you guys. I'm glad you're here, especially if you're a guest with us, uh, you're just checking us out at your first time, maybe you're just here for this series. I'm so glad uh, that you're here. Uh, I lead our recovery ministry here at Rockbrook, and uh, I love being a part of that. And so if you ever need a place to help you find freedom from any kind of hurt, habit, or hang up, then man, we would love to have you come uh, check us out. We meet every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Um, I had to get that plug in there, but that's not even what we're talking about uh, today. Today we're asking the question, is Jesus alive? We're in a sermon series called Not So Far-Fetched and it's about having um, remarkable confidence in a believable God. And so today I get to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, man, I just, I love uh, this topic because the resurrection is at like the core of Christianity. I mean, 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus um, lived in ancient Israel and scholars know that somewhere in between 30 to 33 AD, he died on a Roman cross, but then soon afterwards, a group of his followers went into the city um, of Jerusalem and all around the Mediterranean, spreading the message that yes, Jesus was crucified, but three days later, he came back to life. I mean, this, the, the resurrection of Jesus, it's at like the core of Christianity, the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead. I mean, it's the crucial event of Christianity. And so if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is completely empty. But if it did happen, then it changes everything. And so that's what we're talking about today. And honestly, if I could give one message for the rest of my life, this would be it because I am so in love, so passionate about this topic of the resurrection. Uh, When I went off to college, um, I was totally unprepared to defend my faith. I'd actually left Christianity in high school and started drinking and partying and really kind of made a mess of my life and then that didn't work out and so I came back to church here and um, came back to following Jesus and then I went off to our local community college and I was just like totally unprepared to defend my faith and so I had an art history class and my professor just said something one day that, that made me question everything that I believed. And so I started studying philosophy and apologetics and and history, and I actually changed my major to philosophy, and so here I am 10 years later, and I've spent thousands and thousands of hours studying this stuff, and I, like, do not necessarily recommend that you spend that kind of time on it. Um, But, like, I just wanted to know, like, is this thing for real? Like, is our faith legit? Is there evidence for the resurrection? Can I have confidence that the resurrection happened? And so th- this talk, this is for, for those of you who you're hearing, you just need like a faith checkup. Like everything's good, you believe, but every once in a while you wonder. Maybe you've watched some kind of like documentary on the History Channel and it's like saying some weird stuff and so you, you're asking these weird questions and you just need a checkup like, can I trust that my faith is legit? And there's others of you, you're, you're just checking it out. I mean, maybe you didn't really grow up in a religious home you don't seem to care one way or another you're just like my philosophy of life is just to have a really good time and then when i die i'm gonna deal with whatever's there when i get there and and i'm just i'm just checking it out you're not even sure why you're here someone promised you that you know they'd buy you lunch if you came or told you that you're gonna meet yeah they said you're gonna meet someone cute and so that's why you're here and you're you're just checking it out but then there's a third category of people and for you, you've already decided that, like, I've already checked out of faith. I used to believe, but I've checked out I don't believe anymore. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home, and you were handed, like, a childhood version of faith, and then you became an adult, and what you'd experienced as an adult didn't match what you believed as a kid. Perhaps you went through some kind of tragedy, or someone close to you went through a tragedy, or maybe you had a prayer that Went unanswered, or maybe like me, you had a a college professor who said something that just made you question everything. And so for you, you, you've just decided like I'm checking out of faith. And if that's you this morning, man, I'm so glad that you're here. And and if I'd been through what you'd been through, then I bet I would believe exactly the same thing that you believe. But today, today, I want to help just remove one potential stumbling block to faith, and perhaps provide a bridge to help you consider believing again. I want to tell you something that I think can give you, give us incredible confidence in the historical reality of the resurrection. Because if you think about it, like all this stuff happened 2,000 years ago and it can seem, you know, like it's kind of far off and it's like I know the resurrection is kind of out there somewhere and it's far off. But today I want to try to like bring the evidence um, to life for us and make it just a little bit Um, more tangible. But um, you're going to have to put your your thinking cap on for this one and follow me real um, closely. But I I think this stuff is is incredible. Um, The primary argument against Uh, the resurrection is the idea that the resurrection is just a myth that one person told somebody else you told somebody else and over hundreds and hundreds of years the story of jesus got exaggerated and you know a miracle got thrown in there and a resurrection got thrown in there and it just got exaggerated and became something that it was never meant to be that the written accounts of jesus were far too removed from the actual events to be accurate accounts of the actual events. And by the time anyone had written anything down about Jesus, like all the eyewitnesses were long gone. And so, you know, the story just got exaggerated and there was no one there to dispute it. That's like one of the primary arguments against the resurrection. But if we look at New Testament scholarship, it's going to show us that 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 theory isn't even possible. But you're going to have to follow me real closely um, on this. But I think this stuff is incredible. Um, a few years ago, my wife and I, we, we got married, and um, as, you know, we got married, we're moving our stuff in together, and so um, I look in the corner of the room as we're moving stuff, and she's got a stack of her old college textbooks, and I'm kind of nerdy, and so I'm looking through her college de- textbooks, I'm looking for something to read, and um, I found one that was super interesting, it's called The New Testament, A Historical Introduction to the Early Christian." Writings, And so I started asking her about it, and she said it was for a class that she took at MU in her sophomore year. And her professor, um, like, had a PhD in New Testament studies, but she was um, an atheist. And they studied the New Testament writings from a secular historical perspective, just trying to figure out, like, you know, what does history have to say about these New Testament writings um, from, from a non-believing, just, just historical secular Perspective, and the book was written by a by a guy named Bart D. Ehrman, and um, Ehrman is like um, he's a New Testament scholar. He's one of the most popular um, New Testament scholars out there. He's a really intelligent guy. I mean, he's got his doctorate in New Testament studies, and so he's obviously really, really smart. But Ehrman is um, a non-believer he's an atheist. He, he doesn't believe the Bible's inspired. He doesn't believe Jesus um, was resurrected from the grave. He, he actually tries to find some kind of alternate theory as to explain why people came to believe in the resurrection. But he, he's an atheist, but he studies New Testament documents for a living because there's all kinds of New Testament scholars out there. Some are Christians, some are non-Christians, and there's everyone um, in between. But they study these documents as if they're historical documents, just like, just like any other Um, Document, trying to find out, you know, who wrote it, why'd they write it, um, when and where, because the Bible is not just a book, but the Bible is actually a collection of multiple different documents that were collected, and later on, they were put into a single collection that we now have as our Bible. And the New Testament specifically, it's not a book, but it's a collection of multiple different documents of different biographies of the life of Jesus and different letters written in the first century. And, and, and what's interesting is that all these, these documents in the New Testament that we have are dated to be written in the first century. I'm talking like between 0 and 100 A.D. To which that's supposed to ring a bell and we're supposed to say, yeah, but I thought the resurrection was a myth that one person told another person over hundreds of years. It's just this myth that got exaggerated. But scholars date the New Testament documents to, to have been written in between 30 to 60 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, we've got a timeline that I want to show you, and these dates I literally pulled directly from Ehrman's book, and remember this guy is, he's a non-believer, he doesn't believe the Bible is inspired, but this is how Ehrman um, dates the the books of the New Testament. Now, all scholars, um, believing and non-believing alike, they agree that John was written about 95 AD. And all scholars on all sides of the issue know that the letters of Paul were written in in the 50s and 60s. And everyone agrees that um, Jesus was crucified somewhere in between 30 to 33 AD. Now, there's a little bit of argument as to when um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts were written. Christian scholars think that they were written just a little bit earlier, but, you know, guys like Ehrman, who are, who are non-believers, they think they were written a little bit later, and these are his dates. But all of these letters are, are written 30 to 60 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, guys like Ehrman, who are non-believers, they doubt the authorship of the Gospels, they don't think that John was who John says he was, and they don't think Matthew is actually one of the followers um, of Jesus. I think they were, but, but Ehrman um, doubts it, and that's okay. You know, he's just doing his job, but what's interesting is that even if you doubt the authorship of the Gospels, these are still the four earliest accounts that we have to the life of Jesus, and every single one of them clearly talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And now you may be thinking, "Yeah, but I mean, you're kind of like using the Bible to prove the Bible. I can't trust the Bible, but remember, the Bible is not just a book, but it's a collection of multiple different documents written by different people, and so these serve as different sources, um, different pieces of evidence, and they're all talking about the resurrection. And so even if you don't believe that the Bible's inspired, and I'm, I'm not asking you to believe. Um, and the inspiration of Scripture today. We're going to do a, a talk on that in a few weeks, and you should come back um, for that. But even if the Bible isn't inspired, and I think it is, I think that if, that you can rest your life on this book, and it's going to hold you up, and you're not going to regret it. But even if you don't believe that the Bible is inspired, and, and you just look at the New Testament documents, like historical documents, just like any other, you still have to wrestle with the fact that these documents were written within 30 to 60 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, and they're all pointing To his resurrection. Now that's an amazing fact in this theory that this thing is hundreds of years old, that's not even possible. It's not even possible. But there's more. There's more. It gets better than that. There's a guy named the Apostle Paul, I bet that you've heard of him. And Paul is an incredible, incredible person from a historical perspective. Um, scholars know so much about the Apostle Paul. They know that he was a historical person. They know that you know he wrote all these letters, and they know that Paul was a scholar. I mean, if you read like Romans or Galatians, this guy can put an argument together like no one's business. And so he's a scholar, and so scholars love Paul because Paul was a scholar, he was in the right place at the right time, he knew the apostles, and so like, I mean, Paul is an amazing person from a historical perspective. And in our New Testament, there are 13 letters with Paul's name on it. Now, I think Paul wrote all 13 of those letters, and most um, Christian New Testament scholars think Paul wrote all 13 of those letters, but atheist scholars think that six out of the 13 letters someone else had written, and they just put Paul's name on it so that they can sell it better. And that's fine, and that's what they believe. They're just doing their job. They're just looking at these things like historical documents. They don't think they're inspired. I mean, that's just where they're at, and that's okay. But what's interesting is that there's a group of letters that they call the Undisputed Pauline Epistles. And basically, everyone knows that Paul wrote at least these seven letters, that he wrote Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Um, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Now, don't miss this. Every single one of these letters, except for Philemon, every single one except Philemon, that scholars know he wrote, and scholars know that he wrote it in the 50s and 60s AD, every single one of them explicitly mentions the resurrection of Jesus on multiple occasions. I'll give you an example. In uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, in the first line, the first sentence, this is what Paul writes. He says, "Paul." An apostle sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. I mean, this is the first sentence of his letter, and he's already talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And scholars think that this was written in like 50 to 57 AD. And then Romans, um, Romans 1, verse 4, Paul writes this He says, And who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what this means is that even if the Bible isn't inspired, even if you can't wrap your head around around that today, the resurrection cannot be the result of myth-making, of legend, because within 20 to 30 years, Paul's already writing about the resurrection of Jesus. And scholars know this on both sides of the issue. Now, obviously, atheist scholars, they they doubt that the resurrection actually happened. They try to find some other theory to explain why people believed in the resurrection so early. But their theory has to match the evidence. And the evidence, the fact, is that within 20 to 30 years, people are already writing about the resurrection. The undisputed letters, I mean, they don't prove that the resurrection happened with 100% certainty. But, I mean, we don't even have 100% certainty that George Washington was a real person. But it's really good evidence. I mean, this is, this is incredible evidence. They don't prove that the resurrection happened, but what it does prove is that belief in the resurrection was alive by the 50s and 60s, 80s. So whatever theory you try to come up with, to try to explain away that belief in the resurrection, it has to take place inside of that gap. It has to take place inside of that gap. And, and that's just, I think that alone gives us incredible confidence that we can, that we can know that the resurrection happened but there's more. There's more. Scholars think that preserved in one of Paul's letters to the church um, in Corinth is this really early creed of the earliest Christians. In other words, um, the early Christian church, they would create these creeds to help transfer Information Now, a creed is like um, a really carefully crafted series of statements that's usually really, really memorable. It's got like a cadence to it. Um, It's kind of like a a Taylor Swift song that gets stuck in your head for six weeks. Um, Yeah, it's got like a little cadence to it because um, they wanted to transfer really important information. So if you memorize something in like a poem form, it just sticks in your brain and you don't forget it. Because in the first century, most people didn't know how to read or write. I mean, only twelve percent of people in the first century could read or write, and so the early church would make these creeds so that they could teach people important information. Um, I'll give you an example. Most of you probably know this creed: A B C D E F G H I J K Elemental P Q R S T U V W X Y and Z. And then we even put uh, an ending to it. Now I know my A B C's. Next time, won't you sing with? Me. Now, why on earth would someone want to take the alphabet and put it in that order into that cadence? It's because they wanted to teach really important information to a group of people who didn't know how to read or write. Kids. And so they created this creed to, to transfer this really important information. And what scholars tell us, what New Testament scholars tell us, is that the early church would, would create these creeds and that Paul would often quote these creeds of the early church and he would put them in his letters, and I want to share um, my favorite one with you today, and this is probably the most popular um, early Christian creed. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Paul says. This, this isn't the creed. This is him warming up to the creed because it's so good that it needs it needs a warm-up. <laughs> but he says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. And so he's reminding them of something that he had preached to them um, previously. So I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And so scholars know that Paul wrote um, 1 Corinthians in like 55 AD and that three years previously, he had visited the city of Corinth in 52 and he planted a church there um, in the year 52. And that's when he taught them the gospel. And that's where he um, gave him this message, the gospel that he is now reminding them of in his letter three years later. And then he says in verse three, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And so Paul received something and then he passed it on to them. So he was told something and then he told it to the Corinthians and now he's writing to them to remind them of the thing that he told them when he was with them. And the point is that whatever he is about to tell him this thing that he had already reminded them of is something that he didn't come up with on his own. Someone else um, created it and taught it to him. He received it, and then he passed it on to them in the year 52 AD. And now he's reminding them of it again three years later. And scholars believe that what he's about to remind them of, the thing that he taught them in 52, is this early Christian um, creed. And, and here it is. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Here's the creed. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures; that He was buried; that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures; and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? You guys don't think that's interesting? I'm, I'm telling you, man, this document is incredible. I hope I can convey to you. I don't know if I can, but I hope I can convey to you how incredibly important. This early creed is um, of the church. It's 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 amazing. This is like an amazing piece of evidence. Um, it kind of loses um, a little bit of the cadence when you read it um, in English, but when you're reading it in Greek, it kind of stands out to you a little bit. But you can even see in English that like the first and the third line they parallel each other. At the end, they say according. They end with according to the scripture, and they all start with that, like every line, and that, and that, and that, and that, um, and so it's, it's a creed. It's like a poem. It's this easily memor- memorizable form um, so that they could teach others um, this important information, and scholars are convinced that this is a pre-Pauline creed that he received and then passed on to the Corinthian church in 52, and I'm saying, talking like scholars who are Christians know this is a creed, and even scholars who are non-believers, they know that this is um, a creed As well, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. Christ died for our sins and he was buried. And now no one, no one debates that Jesus was crucified. There was a time in history in like the 1800s where people doubted whether or not Jesus was actually a historical person. But then after that, all these scholars flooded the market and they started studying history. And then now they're like, and people on all sides of the issue, they're like, no, we know Jesus was a historical person. And we know that he was crucified somewhere in between 30 to 33 AD. I mean, no reputable scholar doubts um, the crucifixion of Jesus. But then you get to the part that everyone argues about, that he was raised again on the third day and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now, I don't want you to miss this word appeared. He appeared to Peter. In other words, Peter believed in the resurrection not based on what he'd heard, but on what he saw. He saw an appearance of the resurrected Jesus. I mean, that's so incredibly important. And then Paul gives a list um, of even more people who Jesus had appeared to. In verse six, he says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, and um, I don't know what it would take for your brother to convince you that he was the son of God, but I imagine that what it would take is that he would have to die and come back to life. I'm just saying. I didn't think you guys were going to think that was that funny, but I'll take it. Then he appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. I mean, you, you can't miss this word appear. This is so incredibly important, meaning that we saw Jesus with our very own eyes. This isn't just something that we heard, but we've seen him directly. I mean, this is so important. I'm going to come back to that. But what this creed means is that Paul and, and others, the people who created this creed, they believe that Jesus rose again from the dead within 22 years of the event. And even more than that, they believe that Jesus rose again from the dead based on firsthand direct experience. Not something that they heard, but something that they had seen. That Jesus appeared to Peter, that Jesus appeared to James, Jesus appeared to to the 12, and last of all, Jesus appeared to Paul himself. Now 22 years, historically speaking, is like nothing. You guys ever heard of alexander the great alexander the great was a a king of greece and an incredible military leader and we know all this stuff about alexander the great but what's interesting is that the earliest documents that we have for alexander the great were written 400 years after he died and nobody doubts that alexander the great lived nobody doubts that all the things he did that he was a king of greece but the earliest stuff we've got on him is 400 years and so i'm telling you 22 years is nothing now i'm 30 years old and so for me 22 years is two-thirds of my life and i mean if i was eight and something significant happened to me and then 22 years later someone tried to change the major details of this significant event in my life like i would know that someone was messing with the real story and so 22 years Is nothing, And and what's even more amazing is that there's other churches that Paul planted even before the Corinthian church. He planted one in 44 AD, which is like 14 years later. Paul's already preaching the gospel that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And so that gap just keeps getting narrower and narrower and narrower. But it gets even better. Because the next question that we need to ask is, okay, where did he get this creed? When did he get it? And who did he get it from? What's so interesting is that we know so much about the Apostle Paul. We know that Paul was a persecutor of the church and that one to three years after the crucifixion of Jesus, he conversed to Christianity on um, the road to Damascus. And a lot of scholars think that that's when Paul received um, this First Corinthians Creed in Damascus right after his conversion. So somewhere between one to three years after the crucifixion, Paul receives this creed. And then there's other scholars who say, no, he received it three years after that when he visited Peter and James in Jerusalem because Galatians 1, Paul tells us that he visits um, Peter and James three years later after he's converted to Christianity to learn the gospel from their perspective. This is what he says in, in Galatians 1.18. He writes, "'Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem "'to get acquainted with Cephas "'and stayed with him 15 days. "'I saw none of the other apostles, "'only James, the Lord's brother.'" And what's interesting is Paul uses um, the Greek word istoresi, um to say, to get acquainted. And isstoresi, I mean, it sounds like our word history and it means to get a historical account or to inquire into something. So in other words, three years later, after Paul converts to Christianity, he visits Peter and James with the intent of, of learning the gospel from their perspective. He's like, I, I wanna know what you saw. Tell me, what did you hear? Tell me, did you see Jesus alive from the dead. And so he meets Peter and James and he's like, I want to know this thing um, from your perspective. And so whether it was um, at his conversion or three years later, Paul received this creed sometime within one to six years after the crucifixion. One to six years after Jesus was crucified, Paul has got this creed in his hands. I mean, that's so incredibly early. And whether he received this creed directly from Peter and James or three years earlier, he still got the chance to meet with Peter and James to get to confirm their story, whether or not that Jesus had actually appeared to them. So he knew, I mean, he knew the apostles. He knew Peter. He knew James. Later on, he met the 12 and he met John and he learned from them that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. I mean, this is such incredible, incredible evidence. What's interesting is that like no, no reputable scholar doubts that Paul was convinced that he had seen the resurrected Jesus. No one doubts that Paul was convinced that he'd seen the resurrected Jesus. No one has ever accused Paul of being a liar. And here's why. Because Paul's life proves that he believed it. Because he, he gave up comfort. He traveled the Mediterranean in a ship in poverty to tell people that Jesus was, was resurrected. And so no one, no reputable scholar thinks that Paul was lying because he was willing to suffer and die for his conviction, that he had seen the resurrected Jesus and that he had met the apostles who claimed to have seen the resurrected Jesus. So no one ever accuses Paul of being a liar. And no one accuses Paul of being crazy. Because if you read Romans or if you read Galatians, I mean, this guy, like, he he puts this tightly knit argument together like he's a lawyer. I mean, he is such a scholar, he's a genius, and so like no one, no one accuses Paul of being crazy. And so they're convinced that he was convinced that Jesus was resurrected, that he wasn't telling a lie and that he's not crazy. Now look up here, look up here, don't miss this. I I know this stuff is kind of heady and um, it could be hard to, to grasp. And so if I've been unclear or anything like that, um, look up here. I'm going to summarize the whole point. And If you want more information on this, um, if you give me your email, I'll send you um, a paper that I wrote on this that explains all this in more depth. And there's a ton of resources in there of other guys who are way smarter than me who can explain it uh, much better. And you can get those books and learn as much about this as you want. And so um, that'll be great. But th- this is kind of like heady stuff. And so if, if you've been spacing off or if I've been unclear, if you've been counting the boxes behind me, um, <laughs> look up here, don't miss this. I want to summarize the whole, the whole point of this. The resurrection of Jesus is the most important event for Christianity. I mean, it's the event that launched the church into existence. The resurrection is the message that the apostles clung to, that Peter and James were, were willing to give their life for. I mean, Acts says that there's 120 followers on the first day of the church, and then they flooded the city of jerusalem and eventually all around the mediterranean spreading the message that jesus is alive now luke tells us it happened this way that in acts 2 that on the first day of the church peter walks into the crowd and he's he says this that god has raised this jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it i mean that's the story of the church that's the event that launched the church the resurrection the core of our faith that we had seen the risen Jesus. And it gave them boldness to tell everyone they knew about it, even in the face of suffering and death. At the hands of the Roman leaders, at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders, even in the face of death, they are convinced that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. And most of these guys, they died for their conviction that they had seen Jesus alive. To which you could say, yeah, but I mean, people die all the time for what they believe and they could be wrong. But don't miss this word right here, witnesses. They were witnesses. Do you know the difference between just a believer and a witness? A believer can believe something and end up being wrong, but a witness, a witness, they know whether or not their belief is right because they had seen it for themselves. The unique thing about a witness is that their belief is based on what they had directly experienced. And so if they were wrong, they would know it. I want to try to be clear with this so I'm going to give you um, a modern example. Have you guys seen this photo before? That's a picture they have. It's a picture of Nessie or the Loch Ness Monster and this is called the surgeon's photo. It was taken in 1934 and quite a few people came to believe in the existence of the Loch Ness Monster um, because of this photo because like they didn't have Photoshop back then and so like it had to have been real. But the real story is that this is actually a toy submarine that a guy named Christian Sperling created as part of a prank. And then later on in life, he admits um, that he made the whole thing up as part of a hoax. Now, the people who believed in the existence of a Loch Ness Monster based on the photo, they didn't know that they were being fooled. They had no idea because they weren't there to directly experience whether or not it happened. But the guy who made this up, he knew that it was a lie because he was there directly creating this thing. And so, I mean, he, he knew it was a lie and that's why he later admitted it. And so here's my point. People can willingly die for what they believe is true and they can end up being wrong, but people are not going to die for what they know is false. If you're a witness, your belief is based on what you'd seen. And so if you haven't actually seen it then you'd be lying. And so you probably wouldn't die for it, let alone a group of people who all claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus. I mean, if, the, if this whole resurrection thing was a hoax, if it was a lie, then Peter and James and Paul and, and the 12 and all the people who claim to have seen appearances of the risen Jesus, they wouldn't be willing to die for it because if it was a lie, then there's no way that they would die for a lie because they would have known that it was false because they would have been the ones to make it up. But history tells us that they did die, that they gave their lives. They, they, they lived in poverty to spread the message that we are convinced that Jesus is alive from the dead because we've seen him. And I think that the best explanation for their conviction that Jesus was alive and that they'd seen him is that it actually happened. I mean, this is incredible evidence. Like one to six years, one to six years, there's already documents saying that people had seen Jesus alive from the dead. Not based on what they'd heard, but based on what they'd seen. So if you're here today and and you just need a faith checkup, I'm telling you, you can have incredible, incredible confidence that the resurrection is a historical reality because I mean, we've got such early documentation and I just can't believe that these guys would be willing to give their life for something that they know was a lie. If you're here today and and you're just checking it out, my advice to you is keep checking it out, keep investigating because if the resurrection happened, it is the most important event in history and it's not something that you should ignore. And if you're here today and you've already decided that like I've checked out of faith, I mean what do you do with this what do you do with this evidence and, and I mean you can come up with another theory if you want and, and I get that because like when people die they typically stay dead and so you can come up with um yeah you can you can come up with uh, another theory to try to explain away why these guys believed in the resurrection and, and i'm not trying to be argumentative i'm not trying to step on your toes or anything i just think that this is the most important event in history and so like i'm just trying to help um, tease this stuff out but i mean even if the bible's not inspired and even if you got a bunch of other questions that you can't get answered right now whatever theory you choose to try to explain away belief in the resurrection whatever worldview you pick it's got to fit the facts and the fact scholars agree to is that soon afterwards, I mean, within one to six years, there's documentation that these people had seen the risen Jesus and that they gave their life for that conviction. And I'm telling you, I'm like, scholars do not even debate this fact that the early believers believed they had seen the risen Jesus. I mean, I didn't make this up. You can google it. In fact, I've got a, a quote from Ehrman I want to read to you guys from one of his other books. Erman, remember, he's, he's a non-believer. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. He doesn't believe the Bible is inspired. But he, he writes this. This is what he does admit. From the very beginning, Christian theology has maintained that Jesus truly died. Okay, so this is from the very beginning. that Jesus truly died, was truly buried, and was truly raised from the dead. The earliest author of the New Testament already makes this confession confession in a fixed formula that he claims he inherited from those who were apostles before him and then he quotes the first corinthians creed for i gave to you as a first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture and that he appeared to cephas and then to the 12. he says indeed the reality of jesus actual physical resurrection is attested by all our earliest narrative Gospels. I mean, Erman. he's a skeptic, he's a non believer, but he's a New Testament scholar, and he's like, guys, this creed is legit. The earliest followers, they believed Jesus was resurrected based on what they'd seen. This isn't a debated fact. Unbelieving scholar, I'm not talking about just some guy on YouTube, but like the people who actually study this for a living, they know that Paul believed he'd seen Jesus, Peter seen Jesus based on firsthand appearances. They don't debate that, but I know that there's one smart person out there, and I'm just going to talk to you for a second, whoever you are, and you're, you know, you're you're smart, and you're tracking with this, and you're like, you know, know, you're following with the argument, but you're thinking, okay, Zach, if there's really such amazing evidence for the resurrection that even non-believing scholars agree to, then how come the non-believing scholars don't just believe and the resurrection? And that's a good question. And here's their answer. And here's Erman's answer. This is what atheists think. Their answer is it doesn't matter how much evidence you give me for the resurrection, because resurrections are impossible. Miracles by nature are impossible. And so it doesn't matter how much evidence you give me. It doesn't matter how much my theory falls short and can't explain why people believed in the resurrection. My theory is always going to be better than your evidence. It's always going to outweigh it because resurrections are impossible. Miracles just don't happen. And if you're here this morning and, and you've got that worldview, I mean, I get you. I, I went to a secular university. I studied philosophy there with a bunch of atheists. Like, I understand that worldview. And if you're walking into this conversation already thinking that that resurrections are impossible, here's what I have to say to you. Of course, resurrections are impossible. That's the point. (laughs) I mean if a resurrection happened every single day what would be special about the resurrection of jesus it's because resurrections are impossible that we can know that jesus was the real deal and and if you can't believe in a resurrection today because you can't allow miracles into your worldview like i i respect that i really really do but you you just can't say that it's because there's not enough evidence because there is plenty of evidence. And even if you don't believe um, in Jesus today, you don't believe in the resurrection today, that's okay. But I mean, come on, you owe it to yourself to keep investigating because if the resurrection happened, it's the most important event in history. And I hope that I've been convincing. I hope that I've been uh, persuasive, but I don't want anyone to feel like I'm pressuring you or, or, or trying to manipulate you. I just think that this is the most important thing ever. And I mean, It changes everything. If the resurrection happened, it changes everything. It changes everything about you. It changes everything about your life. And more than that, it says that there's a God out there who is so crazy in love with you. That he would send his son to die for you. And that three days later, he came back to life. And that he can bring you to life as well. So, my question for you is. What is stopping you from believing that? Because there's there's plenty of evidence. I think you should just jump on in. And the evidence, I mean, it's there and it can only take you so far, but then the next step has to be a step of faith. To where you say, I believe Jesus died for the world's sins, and more than that, I believe he died for my sins, and I believe he came back to life. And If you're ready to make that decision today, um, I'm, we're going to pray in a second. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if, if you're ready to make that decision just to say, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins and you came back to life, then just pray this in your heart with me. Let's bow our heads. God, thank you so much for everything you've done for us. Thank you for sending us Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. Thank you for his death and more than that, thank you for his resurrection. To those of you who you're saying, God, I'm just gonna go all in. I'm gonna trust in you. I'm gonna trust you as my savior. Pray this in your heart with me. Say, Jesus, I know I've sinned. I know that I've messed up. And I know that I'm accountable to you for that. But I believe that you came to earth and you died for my sins so that I could be forgiven. And I believe you came back to life. And I'm trusting you as my Savior for my forgiveness for eternal life. And to the best of my ability, I want to spend the rest of my life chasing after you, getting to know you more, serving you, and falling more in love with you, Jesus. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on Earth.